Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's, uh, it's great to see some faces here. We are doing our best to adapt to each phase of whatever we are or aren't allowed to do to the best of our knowledge and ability and creativity. So thanks for bearing with us. I think we can all agree that nothing's happening exactly the way we would want it to, to be what we would expect things to be best. And maybe that's a good thing for us. I'm going to tell a scratchy cat story right off the bat, and then we're going to pray. Um, scratchy cat lives. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't get away from this feline. I don't even like cats that much. But Scratchy Cat was famous for his scratchy nails. You might remember he liked to attack people and dogs with his nails. And that's where he got his nickname, Scratchy Cat. He eventually got adopted and brought into a loving home and learned to get along with dog and master a little bit. But the other thing Scratchy Cat had that made him scratchy was he had a really scratchy tongue. Anybody ever notice that? Like cat's tongues are unpleasant. And Scratchy Cat liked to use his tongue to, to clean himself. And so he would do that thing that cats do where they're always cleaning themselves off. And Scratchy Cat started getting into his head that he just, he, he got like cat cow licks that he just couldn't make lie down. And so Scratchy Cat over time was spending more and more time just devoting himself to trying to get those cat cow licks, which would be a cat lick, but maybe is a cat lick something else? I don't even know. Does it involve salt? No, that's a Salt lick. What? I'm confused. Anyhow, Scratchy Cat was doing that thing all the time. He was just like, clean, 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 clean. And he just couldn't get it right. He's just trying to become his best self, but he couldn't get it right. So he's... And you know what happens when cats are just obsessed with preening themselves, right? They get hairballs. And so Scratchy Cat was getting more and more hairballs. And so Master's house more and more was sounding like this. You've got to like arch your back, right? I've seen them do this. I'm going to throw up. Scratchy Cat was struggling. But even though he's getting the hairballs, because, you know, as you lick the fur, bits of fur get into the mouth and, and then into the digestive tract, you've got to try to get it back out. Even though he was trying his best to get the cow licks down, it wasn't working. And even though the more he tried to fix his hair, the more the... Like, seriously, can I get a bottle of water? He just couldn't fix it. So Master finally was was a little bit sick of the sounds and... And also just feeling compassion for Scratchy Cat. So one day he picks up Scratchy Cat in his oh-so-gentle way he likes to do by the scruff of the neck and just says, Scratchy Cat, you need some help. And so what Master did was he devoted himself every day to longer and longer times of just combing Scratchy Cat, combing his fur, combing him down. Because Scratchy Cat couldn't pull off the fixes that he wanted to do for himself. He needed the Master's help. And over time, Scratchy Cat... Cowlicks got better, and he also just got a little bit more okay with the cowlicks that wouldn't get fixed as he spent more and more time with Master. Uh, there are many problems that we can't fix.
most of the important ones we can't fix. I don't know about you, but I found this, I have found this last week just so terrible. In fact, this is the most emotionally draining week for sermon prep I think I've ever had. Just with what's going on in the world, what's going on with our, our friends in, in the South, um, the lingering effects of COVID with the offense and anger and violence that's bursting out all over different places. Um, it's been terrible. And uh, I'm not really convinced anybody knows how to fix it. So lots of people are trying. And one of my maybe pessimistic views of life is that I, I am fairly convinced that it's when you're trying to fix something, it's always easier to make things worse than it is to make things better. Have you ever noticed that, where you try to fix something and all of a sudden you've actually broken it more? Anybody tried to repair their own car and their last name isn't Penner? I remember when Jackie and I first got a vehicle and and somebody told me that, you know, you needed to check the oil in this thing. And I was like, okay, great, how do you do that? And I finally figured out where that dipstick was and I pulled it out and, and I found out there wasn't enough oil in there. And I was like, okay, I can fix this, no problem. So I went to the store to Canadian Tire and bought the biggest jug of motor oil I could find. And I unscrewed the cap and... I just started pouring oil into the engine. Okay, Somebody who works in the biz is already in suffering in front of me. And as I got about half the jug into the, into the engine, I started thinking to myself, how do you tell when you're done? And so I, I didn't know, so I just stopped, and I put the lid back on, and I thought to myself, thank you. Well, this car burns oil so fast, I'm sure it'll just burn it down to the level it's supposed to be at eventually. Does that work? No. Does that make things way worse? Is it almost better to run your engine with no oil than to run your engine with too much oil? They're both as bad, says the expert. I didn't know. But I sure wanted to help. So I, I, I go to Scripture a lot. Um, I believe that the Bible is not only God's instruction manual, but in a unique sense because it's God speaking and because God is the Word. When you're reading the Bible with faith, you are with God. You're in the presence of God because God is talking. And that's often the best part of being with somebody is talking with them. And so I've been trying to be in the scriptures in this uh, painful, offensive, and offending season of life. 
and trying to just, what I do is I try to see where Scripture connects well with what is happening in the world. And then if I feel like I've gotten a good grasp on that, then I look to see what God was doing in a situation that was very similar to what we're going through. Because then you can see what God's heart is for your situation. If you can find in Scripture a situation just like your situation, you know what God did then, then you can fairly clearly understand what God's heart would be for now. Does that make sense? And so as I was thinking about this and thinking about the life of Christ, a verse came into my mind that I followed up with a little bit. And it was this verse from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm spending lots of time in the Sermon on the Mount these days. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's the verse. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Do you get it yet? This is the context for Jesus' instruction there. In Israel at the time, in the area around Jerusalem, there were tons of Roman soldiers. Because Rome was governing Israel and Jerusalem at that time. And one of the things that the Roman soldiers had the right to do was when they were traveling from, say, one place to another, they had the right to commandeer somebody and make them carry their backpacks for about a mile. And their backpacks, those were their their war gear, right? It would be their cups, their pots, their pans, their knapsacks, and it might contain a sword or a shield or something like this. So they had the right in other countries to commandeer somebody and make them carry their backpack for a mile so that as they're traveling as soldiers, they'll arrive wherever they're supposed to be going with more energy and not as worn out because other people would have been carrying their backpack. Which is good context because even as I was Googling this whole second mile thing, usually when people talk about going the second mile, they're talking about like being nicer or if somebody, you know, pays you to... to uh, wash their your car they might vacuum it out they go the second mile they go a little bit extra they're just putting their heart into something but as we're going to see there is a lot more going on with the second mile command than simply saying do more than you've been asked to do so let's talk about rome for a second i i want to paint the picture that for jesus in his day his experience would have been very similar to a people group who feel like they're being ruled over by another people group who are not for them. And one of the, I, I want us to meet Jesus, and I, I want us to understand, maybe in another level, how offensive Jesus would have been to his average fellow citizen in, in these days as he taught them how to live in the kingdom of God. So, if you remember at the end of the Old Testament-ish, here's your history lesson for the day. Don't tune me out. I know most of you haven't been doing your schoolwork anyway, so you're going to learn something at church. Skadoosh. 
At the end of the Old Testament, you might remember there's a remnant that's come back from exile in Babylon, and they're trying to set up life again in Jerusalem. Remembering that? And the temple's been destroyed, and they've started to work on building this new temple. And then all of a sudden, when you come to the New Testament, it's been like almost 500 years. What happened in between? Well, what happened in between is that Israel built itself up a bit under different governors, And then this guy named Alexander the Great showed up on the scene. And he gets this title, Alexander the Great, not because he was a great buddy to have around, and he always brought tons of chips when there was a hockey game on and that you were having a party in your man cave. He's called Alexander the Great because he was so good at killing people. Alexander the Great was a Macedonian, so that's the country right beside Greece. And he was so good at killing people, he managed to conquer the entire world between Greece all the way to India. He, he made it to India, just killing people. And somebody once estimated that Alexander um, enslaved a third of the world, killed a third of the world, and left a third of the world free under his rule. So that's part of what happened. And Alexander was convinced that the best thing that could happen to the world was for them all to embrace Greek culture, which is why, and then he forced everyone to learn Greek, which is why our New Testament is in Greek, because everywhere he went, he forced people to learn Greek and govern in Greek. So that's why the Old Testament's in Hebrew, and though even though the New Testament is written um, by Jewish people, it's written in Greek because Alexander made everyone learn Greek. Well, he died and his kingdom was divided up into four smaller kingdoms. And, of course, they went to war against each other. And one of those kingdoms ended up being in charge of um, Jerusalem and Israel. And one of the guys made this decision one day to really desecrate the temple and to set up idols in the temple or offer a pig in there or something like that. And, you know, in the time of this guy named Antioch Epiphanes, there's this huge revolt in Jerusalem, and they revolt against their rulers. And eventually, this guy named Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer, he's the Hebrew hammer, he, which is funny, they made a movie called that, but it's after Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer. He's this priest, and he leads a successful revolt against their rulers. And for a while, Jerusalem and Israel enjoys some independence under this, or this uh, dynasty called the Hasmonean Dynasty. So that's about 160 years before Jesus is born that this successful revolt happens. And the reason I'm telling you this is because in Jesus' time, the people then remembered it wasn't that long ago that we had our independence. It was just a couple of centuries ago that Judas successfully kicked out these foreign idolaters from ruling over us. Well, about 100 years after Judas' successful revolt Um, the Romans show up and they conquer Jerusalem, this guy named Pompey, one of the biggest successful Roman generals ever. So about 60 years before Jesus is born, Jerusalem is conquered again by the Romans, and the Romans stay in charge of Jerusalem for centuries. But that's why the Romans are in the New Testament. They conquered under Pompey, Israel, and they made them a province. And this guy named Herod was friends with some of the Roman leaders. 
And so the Roman leaders made Herod the ruler over Israel. Is that name familiar to you from the New Testament anywhere? Okay, so that's part of the connection. And it's more detailed, but I've just, I'm trying to paint this background. The people of Israel knew independence not that long ago. And they also knew that it was only about 60 years from when Jesus was born or 90 years from Jesus' um, ministry time that the Romans came and killed a bunch of them. So kind of like some of us might have family members that fought in the Second World War that we might remember, almost every Jew in Jesus' time would know that great-grandpa Levi died fighting the Romans, and great-uncle Judah died fighting the Romans. Okay, this would be part of their culture that all of them knew people who died losing to the Romans in war. And then the Romans stayed. And one of the things the Romans did was they were excellent, excellent tax collectors. So why did Jesus end up being born in Bethlehem? Because Caesar Augustus made everyone go home so he could have a census of the world so that they could collect taxes well. What did Rome do with the taxes that they collected? They used the money they collected in taxes in order to pay their soldiers to occupy foreign countries. So every time a Jewish person paid a Roman tax, they were literally just paying the soldiers to stay them, keeping them oppressed. Would that make young men frustrated? Maybe, yeah. So I'm painting you the social picture of the New Testament that Jesus is functioning under. They are a conquered, oppressed people who are heavily taxed in order to fund the soldiers who stay in their country, threatening to kill them if they revolt. Fun times? You know what I'm talking about? Ring any bells? Remember, so a few verses from the New Testament that remind us of the presence of Rome. The beginning of Luke, when Jesus starts his ministry, it's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. That's Luke 3.1. Herod from Luke is the son of Herod the Great. So this is who's ruling the world. Tiberius Caesar, who was like the uh, adoptive son of Pompey's best friend who conquered Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor. And Herod, the Herod that's ruling, is the son of the one who massacred all the children in, in Bethlehem. And this is what the reputation of Pontius Pilate is like. You know, we, we know Pontius Pilate from Jesus' trial. And he comes off actually not too bad in that trial compared to other stories of him. Because he doesn't totally want to crucify Jesus, but he ends up doing it for fear of the crowds. But he doesn't come off as this like bloodthirsty maniac. But he was a ruthless, Jew-killing Roman governor. And we do know this from the New Testament. Remember this story from Luke chapter 13, verse 1. And it says, There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
So we don't know the whole story there, but even in Jesus' days, Pontius Pilate ordered his soldiers to kill a bunch of Jewish worshipers so that their blood went into the same blood as their sacrifices. How do you think that made the nation of Israel feel about their Roman overlords, knowing that while they worship Yahweh, the governor of Rome kills them? Notice any similar feelings from what some people are going through today. Allegiance to Rome or even thinking about Rome was so controversial that Jesus' enemies at the end of his life tried to catch him showing some sympathy to Rome as a way of provoking the crowds against him. You'll remember the story from Matthew 22 where it says, this is Jesus' teaching in the temple right before he gets crucified. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is meant to be the catch. If Jesus says, like a good rebellious Jew should, don't pay taxes to our killing overlords, then they're going to go to Pontius Pilate and say, you need to kill Jesus today. He's preaching against Caesar. Right? But if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then they get to say, you want us to pay the people who kill us? And they think they have Jesus in this lose-lose situation and they're going to get him and they're going to capture him today. That's when Jesus says, show me the coin that you pay the tax with. And they say, and he says, whose picture is on this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. And Jesus was not trapped by it, but that's the background of the question. So I'm just trying to paint this picture, which I think is accurate, about the scenario that Jesus is in. He's not just some guy walking around telling people how to be nice to each other. He's a Messiah, which, which was going to be, as far as everyone was concerned, the Messiah who shows up is going to be this great, powerful warlord who's going to rally the young men of Israel and they're all going to pick up their spears and their swords and they're going to kill the Romans and they're going to get independent and then they're going to take on anybody else who threatens them and they're going to have true worship in a cleansed temple and they're going to have unlimited victory and they're going to be free. That's what Messiahs were meant to do. And Jesus had to keep rejecting this. Do you remember there was this story from John here? I think it's after Jesus um, does the the feeding of the 5,000. It says this in John chapter 6. Forgive me if I've got the wrong background there. I didn't write it down. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to, to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
So Jesus, in this miracle of the feeding 5,000, he's so successful, they're just like, this is it, this is the time, he's the Messiah, go get your swords, we're going to make him king, he's going to kill all our enemies, yahoo! And Jesus goes, nope, I'm out of here. And even in an interview with Pontius Pilate, right before Pilate kills him, Pontius Pilate's trying to figure out Are you one of these guys who rallies soldiers together to try to destroy Rome? Is this you? Like, they say you're the Messiah, but you don't look like a Messiah. You don't look like a soldier. You don't look like a general. And Jesus says to them, him in 1836, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so he has to tell him, Because everyone is expecting bloodshed. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And that's why there's the only blood that's going to get shed tonight is mine. Crazy. So coming back to the Sermon on the Mount... If I'm at all right here, Jesus has gathered this crowd and his disciples are near him and he's trying to teach them how to live in the kingdom of God. But he's trying to teach a people where they're hurt and they're angry and many of them are ready to kill. So much so that about 30 years after Jesus comes back from the grave, there is the great Jewish revolt. It starts around 66 AD or 67 AD, where they really do try to kick out the Romans. And what happens is in the year 70 AD, the Romans come with a real army in force, and they totally devastate Jerusalem. And they they kill like a million people, and they turn Jerusalem into a forest of crucifixes, and they level the temple of of God with not one stone left upon another, just like Jesus warned them was going to happen. Titus does this, and the temple's never been rebuilt because they went the way of armed revolt. They went the way of armed rebellion against Rome, and Jesus said that this, that's going to be the result. If you don't accept my messiahship, not one stone is going to be left on top of this, of another at this temple. And so here is Jesus. And guys, I never saw this before. I never saw this before. I never saw this before. It never occurred to me how much anger was going to be in the crowds of people Jesus was talking to. How much offense? How many stories? This family member hurt. That sister taken out by the Roman soldiers. This dad beaten up. This guy wrongfully stolen from. How much anger there was going to be in the crowds that Jesus was talking to. And in one sense, it makes some sense that that people could stir up such a mob to want to get rid of Jesus in Jerusalem eventually. Like you wonder, like if Jesus only went around healing people and saying, be nice, where do you get a mob of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? You know what I'm talking about? Like that doesn't make any sense. When Mr. Rogers died, was it to a crowd of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? Anybody remember Mr. Rogers? Okay. Mr. Dress-up then? Anybody crucify Mr. Dress-up? 
No. So for me, I'm wondering if this is a bit of a missing link in my understanding here. Okay, so you've got this crowd of people. And you're trying to teach them how to know God through the Christ, who's the suffering Christ and the Christ that has come not to abolish the law, but to uphold it. And in the midst of this long teaching of talking about heart issues, and maybe we'll look at a few of them in a second, he says to these, these people, this crowd full of young men who are angry, he says to them, hey, if one of these Roman soldiers that you just can't wait to kill grabs you and says, you've got to carry my backpack for a mile, I want you to do it for two. And I never thought before, but I... I I can only imagine now that some of them are like, darn you, Jesus, to say that. Who do you think you are? You betrayer of our nation. You invalidator of our suffering. These Roman soldiers who kill us every day, you want me to carry his backpack for two? You should have told me to kill that guy. Yeah, you carry his backpack into a dark alley, and then you kill that guy. That's what Messiah should be telling us to do. These pagan, idol-worshipping, temple-desecrating, killing-us-worshipping God kind of Romans, you don't tell us to carry the backpack two miles. Am I crazy? Am I just making this stuff up? Like that, because you can get through the Sermon on the Mount without hearing Rome, except for the mile thing. This is the thing that like gets in my jaw. The, the second mile thing can only apply to soldiers. And so seeing that and not being able to unsee that, You go back and you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And and even just chapter 5 is blowing my brains out for angry, offended people who want to do something about it. To really do something about it. To really do something about it. Because prayer doesn't work, right? You notice that? Our, Our culture in the last two years has decided if you say, I'm praying for you, you're not doing enough. You can't just pray. So here's Jesus addressing future revolters, addressing people with mass killing in their hearts. He says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first thing he says. Blessed are you when you don't think you can fix this. Blessed are you when you don't know what to do and and admit it. You don't know what to do. You guys get the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who rage. Blessed are you when you just weep over this stuff. Blessed are you when you just cry because you can't fix this. You'll be comforted. Blessed are those who meek, who are meek. You guys are worried about who's going to inherit the earth. You guys are worried about who's going to be rulers over. Blessed are you who are just so humble. You embrace such humility, you don't even know what to do with yourself. You're disgusted with yourself, you're so humble. And not arrogant and proud. You guys will inherit the world. Do you hear how there's tones here? Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
you'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. He says to a crowd of people who want revenge today, blessed are you who are merciful. You'll receive mercy. And you guys who want revenge, guess what you get? I think I'd be so offended and I haven't even gotten out of the Beatitudes yet. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's even angry at his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's saying that to, to, to such hurting people. He says, if in your hurt you start hating your brother, we'll find out how you smell in the barbecue. Bah! You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. I don't know what it is, but it seems like when you have a people who are oppressed, oppressed, one of the first things that happens is that their own women start getting treated very badly. And I don't know what it is. Like it, I think angry men don't know how to treat women. I don't think offended men know how to stay faithful to their wives from Jesus' teaching here. I think angry, offended men always have an excuse to do what's wrong. And it starts in their home. And that's why I think when Jesus is trying to address this angry nation, he says, you're not allowed to be angry at your brother. And you're not allowed to think whatever you want about women. And you're not allowed to leave your wife. No matter what the Romans do. And he says, then he starts talking about oaths. Oh, so you guys got to still keep your promises. And then he gets to the retaliation part. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. And the evil people are right there and they have swords. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone would sue you take your, and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. So if someone's going to take your overshirt, give him your undershirt. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I could just see myself in the crowd being so angry because I would get it. Because Jesus is talking to a people who feel so vulnerable. And he's saying, why don't you choose to be even more vulnerable? I don't know if this is the best result of sermon prep. But this week I understand way more how people could want to kill Jesus. Because we all know that when we're hurting and when we're angry, we want someone to tell us how we can take out our angry, anger on someone. We don't want someone to come to us and say, why don't you just make sure you don't sin at all? 
why don't you just make God the biggest thing in the universe and not really care what other people are doing and just make sure you're not sinning? So I'm going to say two more things, and I don't know how connected these are, but I'm going to say two more things, and I think maybe they might be helpful for us. The first thing I want to say is there is such a profound wisdom in the call to go the second mile, and the thing I want to end with was is the, the heart of Jesus to make sure everyone knows they have a Heavenly Father when they're suffering. The wisdom in the call to go the second mile, I wonder if for many of us, one of the main um, reasons we get angry and we do stupid things when we're angry is because we are afraid that we are stuck being victims, right? We're we're stuck. We're stuck. I'm so stuck. I'm so stuck. I need to do something and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to do something and I'm angry and I'm going to, I've got to do something. I've got to get out of here. I've got to change things. And what happens with the teaching of Jesus telling people, how about before you're in a situation where you feel like you're being mistreated, you decide that you're going to take control of that situation by doing more than someone else could ask. And that's the wisdom of the second mile. When Jesus is telling all these young, angry people, maybe, and there's some moms out there who are just lacking sleep and all that stuff. When he's saying, why don't you decide beforehand to go the second mile? What he's saying is, when you're my disciple, you never have to feel out of control of your life. When you're my disciple, you can always serve me. You can always be a servant of Christ. And you can always never feel like you're underneath a sinner. You just have to be willing to do something crazy. Right? If this Roman soldier who is a jerk, who kills people for a living and takes your money so he can kill more people for a living, comes to you and says, you're going to carry my backpack for a mile. It's like, well, you're telling me stuff, but I am already going to obey Jesus and I've already decided that I'm going to carry it for two. So thanks for your request for me to carry your backpack one mile, but I've already decided I'm going to carry it for two. Who's in control of this situation here? The second mile guy. You know what I mean? The second mile guy is no human slave when he's deciding to go the second mile. He's just a servant of God. Hello? Do you see the wisdom in that? Do you see how it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not this Roman soldier's um, chump. I'm God's, I'm God's servant. By, go, by going twice as far as he thinks he's doing me a problem. Somebody comes up, slaps you on the face. You just want to kill that guy. Right? He's like, no, I decided beforehand. You can't, you can't insult me. I, let's do the face slap game. This time now. Only, only make me feel like you mean it. I know I'm being a little bit silly, but I'm trying to make a point here. This teaching of Jesus is rescuing his hearers from feeling like they're, they're the victims in the world. No, 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 don't be a victim in the world. Be a servant of Christ in the world. By doubling down on on the worst they think they're doing, you double down with the best you can do. I'd never seen that before. I'm usually stuck feeling like the victim. I've never made it better by feeling like that. And part of that is it turns... 
the probably satanically inspired suffering in the world into a service to the king, king of God. Okay? The king who is God. Sorry, bad grammar. And this is one of the things I want to point out. I think all of us have been disgusted, or many of us have been disgusted or disturbed by that video of a police officer um, using excessive force to death on, on that gentleman down in the States. And I don't even know how to talk about it. It's so disturbing. But one of the things that it gets in my spirit is like, I, I know somebody who, by an armed authority figure, was held down until he suffocated to death too. His name is Jesus. That's how Jesus died. An armed authority figure named a centurion nailed him to a cross and held him in place until he essentially suffocated to death. Like many of us witness on that YouTube video, which is just disturbing. But it's just very similar to how Jesus died. The biggest difference being that because Jesus died not as a victim of Rome, but as a servant of his father, his death did crazy good things. Jesus even told people, nobody takes my life from me, I give it freely. He was no one's victim, even though he was the victim. So much so that that this happened. And this, again, this is so offensive, it's not even funny. Matthew 27, verse 45. And now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some, he's even crying out here. There's so many similarities. And some who were bystanders heard it saying, he's calling for Elijah, which he wasn't. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went to the holy city and appeared to him. Now, this is the craziest part. When the centurion and those who are with him, meaning the other Roman guards, keeping watch over Jesus, not keeping watch for safety, but making sure he would die, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And it just makes, you know, if you think about it, if you think about it, if you were there and you love Jesus and you identify with Jesus and Jesus is your people and the Romans are the enemy and the Romans are the bad guys and the Romans are evil idolaters and Jesus dies and the first person to confess faith in Christ is a Roman? That's messed up. But that's the kingdom of heaven. The first person to confess that Jesus was not just some victim dying on the cross was the guy killing him. That's messed up. 
But that's the mercy of God. Guys, the mercy of God, wouldn't you think that the thing that should happen is God should have just decided beforehand that everybody who touched his son during the crucifixion would be the first people in the deepest layers of the lake of fire? Don't you think that should be normal? Everyone who touched my son during the crucifixion, it's just going to be the, you guys are the coals at the bottom of the lake of fire, and it's going to be pain, pain, pain for eternity. But the first person to realize that this guy was someone amazing was the centurion? Was the guy killing God? Is the first one to realize that this is the Son of God? It's messed up. I could see, like, aren't you mad at God yet? How unfair this is? I can totally see it. I never saw it before. Why do people want to kill you? I totally get it. He's just so unangry at the Romans. Who were, they were slave traders. They were world conquerors. They were not good people. And he's, he's out there saving them. How did Jesus ever even begin to think that this would work? If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, there is something very, very interesting about all these commands to kind of behave yourself even when you're suffering. If you want to encapsulate the Sermon on the Mount, that's what it is. If you're going to follow me, you need to learn how to behave yourself even when you're suffering. No excuses, no whining. You've got to learn how to obey me even when you're suffering. Because if you can't obey me when you're suffering, you're never going to. But what was Jesus' secret to this? It's, his, it's the love of his Father. You tell it because this is all Jesus is talking about over and over and over again. I'll just read you some. Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Matthew five forty five. I'm going to read it here. 44 and 45, but I say to you, love your enemies. Oh, guys, can you imagine how painful it would be to, to be a, a Jew under the Romans hearing Jesus say to love your enemies? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5:48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 6:1 Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The point being live for a reward from your Father in heaven. He wants to bless you. He wants to reward you. Matthew 6:4 Let your giving be done in secret and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Matthew 6:6 6, 6, When you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. Matthew 6, 8. Don't be like them. For your Father, he's saying people who just go on and on praying like nobody's listening. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father 
will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 18. Do your fasting in secret. He says, hide your fasting by still looking good in the morning. Some of us have a hard problem with that in general, but me mostly. Matthew 6, 18. So that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Matthew six twenty six. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not more valuable than they? Matthew six thirty two. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask, who ask him? Matthew seven twenty one. I think this is the last one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus addressing this nation in pain. Every time he talks, just says to them, you know, it's about, my, it's about my father and your father. This life is about my father and your father. This is about the love of my father and your father. If you don't, if you don't know it, you don't believe it, you're going to... not going to go well. And so let me just wrap up, and I thank you for your patience. By saying this, number one, I have a real encouragement for you, saints, is this, that the Father really loves you. Maybe you've had the best week of your life, whatever it's been. Maybe it's the best spring of your life, whatever it's been. The Father really loves you. He totally knows you. He knows your worries. He knows your hurts. He knows where you're angry. He knows where you feel so stuck. He knows where you want to hurt somebody and hit somebody. He knows where you hate a brother. He knows where you hate a family member. He knows where you just want to quit. And he really loves you. And he loves you so much that even if you were the centurion killing his son... He wants you to know who Jesus is so that he can bring you home and love you. And if God the Father can love that, that centurion enough to save him, I think he's saved, like he, he got it. He had the miracle revelation. This is truly the Son of God. When Peter said to Jesus, you're the Son of God, Jesus said to Peter, you didn't just notice that on your own. My Father has revealed that to you. That's that same confession. If God can so mercifully love that guy, He must really love us. And so whatever the week's been like and whatever you're carrying, whatever you're frustrated with, in the name of Jesus, bring it to the Father. In the name of Jesus, connect with the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, mourn before the Father and rejoice before the Father and weep before the Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, come to the Father because if you're not walking under the Father's love, you can't really do any good. And we'll have all kinds of ideas and we may even have mobs of people agreeing this is the right way, but if it doesn't come from the love of the Father and flow through the Son of the Father, it won't help. And I know every single one of us, we have these thoughts in our minds. We have these mind worms. We have these lies from the enemy that stand up against 
the true belief that the Father could love us with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. And I want to say to you today that that is your true enemy. Every lie that stands against the knowledge of the love of the Father is the worst thing in your life. And I want you to pick up the sword of the Spirit against that. That's the problem. The lies of man and the lies of the enemy that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's Romans 1. Paul's apostle tells us the problem with the world is that people believe lies about God in resistance to the truth of God. And that's where every wrong thing starts. So, so if you're angry, fight the lies you believe about yourself or God. And I'll do that too. Okay, this is my journey too. I'll do that too because I've got some. I got some problems, and they don't bless anybody when I believe those lies. And number two, I want to call us as a church to to hear that call to the second mile and hear the call to have no new enemies. No matter what. The point of this life is not to gather up a list of more and more enemies. People who have hurt us, people who have neglected us, and people who have failed us, and people who don't understand. That is not the point of the rest of our days, is to gather no new enemies, but to have more and more people that we love and pray for. As one, like if Jesus' teachings are true, one of the ways that God lets you know somebody needs prayer is he lets them persecute you. Trusting that you will remember that God said to pray for those who persecute you. To learn to love. This is psycho. This is the kingdom of God is messed up. But we all who confess Christ are living under the command to love and to pray for people who persecute us. So in the kingdom of God, that's how God lets you know who needs missions. They hate you. And so this is where I'm coming from. This is my week. These are my thoughts. These are my verbal processes. But I just, I don't want to hate Jesus and be mad at him because he's not mad at the people I'm mad at. I want to die to myself. Amen? Father, we just thank you. May the band can come up. Father, I thank you for these opportunities to meet with Jesus and to hear about Jesus. Jesus, I, I still, I, I'm sure there's more to learn. God, we, we, we want to help. We know there's so much going on wrong. I pray you'd make us truly useful to you. And Father, I pray that we would hear your teachings through your son in the Sermon on the Mount to to learn to not hate our brothers, Lord. I, I know even at Calvary, we, we sometimes really struggle with each other. And how do we think we can solve any of the world's problems if, if, if I can't even get along here? God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the shed blood of, of King Jesus, 
that you would in our days truly raise up warriors for the love of the Father in the power of the cross of Christ. I pray, God, that you would help me to not gather any new enemies and to lose the ones I think I have. Father, we need supernatural grace. We need you to help us to understand what's going on in our hearts. And I just pray for such profound freedom. Everybody who's here and everybody who's going to hear my voice, God, would you give us the liberation of the, of the King? Lord, would you help us to walk in the freedom of the Spirit? Jesus, you spoke these words to us, and I pray that the same power that created everything out of nothing would create the love of God where there might not be it now. For your glory and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.